All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering the advantage. Coming up, it's been more than 70 years since the United States dropped from being the world's largest producer of merchant shipping and the country's maritime industry fell into a precipitous decline. Today, the U.S. owns only about 3% of the 55,000 ships in the global commercial fleet, dominated by foreign-owned and managed companies. China alone produces more than half the commercial ships delivered each year. What should be done about it? What can be done? Veteran maritime industry executive Michael Roberts joins us for a deep dive into some of the issues surrounding this deeply complex issue. But first, a look at some of this week's naval news. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on December 15th extended the deployment of the aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford and embarked carrier Air Wing 8 because of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. The ship Wing and ships of its strike group deployed from the U.S. East Coast initially in May and already have been extended twice for a total as of the 15th of December of 227 days out, seven and a half months and counting. Cruiser USS Normandy is with the Ford as the air defense commander. SecDef Austin was to visit the Ford as part of a trip including stops in Israel, Qatar, and Bahrain. Extended carry deployments have become almost routine since the February 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, with the George H.W. Bush strike group spending eight months on deployment and the Harry S. Truman group nine. In the most recent naval developments in the Red Sea region, Houthi rebels from Yemen attempted to board and reroute the Hong Kong-flagged container ship Maersk Gibraltar, December 14th, then launched missiles when the ship did not comply. The missiles missed. Responding to a distress call from the Maersk Gibraltar, the destroyer USS Mason then shot down a Houthi-launched aerial drone. And early on December 15th, a missile hit was reported on the Marshall Islands-flagged container ship Al-Hazra as she approached the Baba Mandeb Strait. A fire reportedly had broken out on the ship, which is operated by Hapag Lloyd Shipping Company. The increasing level of Houthi attacks on merchant shipping near the Baba Mandeb at the southern end of the Red Sea led to shipping giants Maersk and Hapag Lloyd announcing on December 15th a halt to their ships passing through that choke point. Neither company said how long the halt would be in force, although Hapag Lloyd said they would reevaluate the situation on December 18th. Efforts by the United States to beef up the combined maritime force in the region, in particular Combined Task Force 153, with specific responsibility for security in the Red Sea, Baba Mandab, and the Gulf of Aden, is expected to increase. Meanwhile, in a possible resurgence of Somali-based pirate activities, the Spanish frigate Victoria, operating with the European Naval Force in the Gulf of Aden region, was responding December 15th to an alleged hijacking of the Malta-flagged Bulkar Ruin in the eastern Gulf of Aden. On a different sort of note, a spirit spot that aired in the middle of the Army-Navy football game broadcast on December 9th featured the destroyer USS Kearney, 
along with several not previously released scenes of the ship conducting missile and gunfire warfare against Houthi-launched targets. The spot prominently featured the graphic USS Kearney 22-0, indicating that at least 22 targets downed, presumably since mid-October. On December 14th, U.S. Central Command Commander General Michael Carrilla embarked on the ship to speak to the crew and pass out awards to more than 20 sailors. If only Navy had scored 22 points. The U.S. Coast Guard medium endurance cutter Harriet Lane arrived at Pearl Harbor on December 14th to switch home port from Portsmouth, Virginia to Hawaii. Commissioned in 1984 and fresh off a major surface life extension program carried out at Coast Guard Yard Curtis Bay in Maryland, the Harriet Lane is the first of the 13 famous class cutters to be based in the Pacific. The move is part of a larger Coast Guard effort to shift resources to the Pacific region with a greater emphasis on enforcing territorial laws and regulations. U.S. Marine Sergeant Matthew Bilski died December 12th when an amphibious combat vehicle rolled over during exercises at Camp Pendleton, California. 14 other Marines in the vehicle were treated for injuries, with one remaining hospitalized after three days. Bilski was a vehicle commander with Battalion Landing Team 1-5, which is training with the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit for an upcoming deployment with the Boxer Amphibious Ready Group. And in new ship news, a keel ceremony was held December 15th for the new destroyer George M. Neal, DDG-131. The Flight 3 Arleigh Burke-class destroyer is under construction at HII's Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula, Mississippi. In better late-than-never news, the U.S. Navy finally has a confirmed top acquisition official. The U.S. Senate on December 13th confirmed Nicholas Girton to become Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition, the top weapons buyer in the Department of the Navy. It was only 1,057 days since the last permanent ASN RDNA, James Hondo Gertz, left office. And eager to get out of town for the end-of-year recess, the U.S. Congress on December 15th approved the 2024 National Defense Authorization Bill. Among its provisions, the bill authorized $32.9 billion for shipbuilding, including one Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine, two Virginia-class attack submarines, two Arleigh Burke-class destroyers, two Constellation-class frigates, one submarine tender, one John Lewis-class fleet oiler, and an auxiliary personnel lighter. The Auth Bill, of course, contains no real money. That's in the National Defense Appropriations Bill, which Congress has yet to see fit to act on. Both previous bills, the Defense Appropriations and Authorization Acts of 2023, expired after September 30th of this year. And oh, by the way, after yet another pointless delay in bringing that authorization bill to the floor for a vote, the House approved the bill 310 to 118, the Senate by a whopping 87 yeas to 13 nays. Amazingly, your critters in Congress actually can agree on something if they want to. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. Okay, we're happy this week to focus on the future of America's maritime industry, not just the future of the industry, but in the context of competing with China. And joining us today is Michael Roberts. He's a senior fellow with the Hudson Institute Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. He focuses on issues impacting the American commercial maritime industry in light of the geopolitical competition with China. That, that, was, that was, I was just reading the blurb there. 
He was also a general counsel at Crowley, which is a major American maritime company. He actually had several roles at Crowley. So he knows what he's talking about. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Roberts. Thank you. It's great to be here, Chris. Thanks. So you are out with a new report for Hudson, rewriting the future of America's maritime industry to compete with China. China is an absolute juggernaut, um, maybe not seen since the days of the late 19th century and when England really uh, dominated shipping worldwide, both in terms of uh, shipbuilding and trade. Uh, yeah. China is, is can outbuild the world. Um, certainly, the United States is not able to compete with building ships, but we don't really build ships anymore. Uh, China builds ships, Japan builds ships, Korea builds ships. Uh, that's really where the where the shipping industry, where the ship construction industry is gone. But right. also, China is taking over ports worldwide, and they're taking over ports all over the world. They they have the potential to control world trade on a level that hasn't been seen perhaps since the British in the late 19th century. Can you just you know why did you write this report? What do you see as the big issues here? Sure. Um, well, I what what. Um, Motivated me to get into this uh, is uh, I've been around this industry since uh, the early 1990s. I joined Crowley in 1991. I've been involved in policy issues related to the American maritime industry since then. I helped, uh, uh, I contributed to the Maritime Security Act of 1996. Um, the first op-ed I ever published was in connection with that legislation in the Journal of Commerce around that time frame. Uh, and, and so I've been involved in policy issues for a long time around this, around the maritime industry. And the, the assumption underlying the legislation, the policy decisions that have been made and that continue to this day um, are that America would be the sole global superpower because we just won the Cold War. Uh, there was no uh, no competition. There, there was nothing close to it. And we assumed it was going to last forever at some level. We had, we had that assumption. And the second assumption was that the maritime industry, uh, whatever happened, really was probably not all that important anymore. And that, those were the key assumptions that uh, drove policy decisions in the 1990s. And, and those persisted through uh, the 2000s and, and, and most of the 2010s and, and really up to today. And, and uh, it, sort of in the late uh, teens, in 2019 or so, um, I had the chance to do some podcast, podcast interviews with uh, experts in this area. Uh, uh, Admiral Stavridis and um, uh, Robert O'Brien and Michael Pillsbury and, and others who, who really have are experts on China and on national security and have a good understanding of the commercial maritime industry. And what struck me, the, the, the same punchline, every single interview was effectively that, that the world's turned upside down in this space and we need, to, we need to understand that and we need to rethink our policies in light of, in light of the new world that we live in now. So I spent a lot of time uh, working through the issues and, and uh, thinking through uh, how we should respond and, and and came up with the report that you mentioned earlier. So, I mean, what can really be done here? I mean, the United States got out of the shipbuilding business gradually after World War II for a lot of reasons. You know, sure. we, we built, we built more ships than anybody's ever built um, over the, over the course immediately leading into and during World War II. Uh, but, 
that that industry fell apart for a lot of reasons. Number one, there were a lot of ships. Nobody needed new ships for a while. Um, the sure. war was over. Um, the government investment went away. But also, you get into the 60s and the 70s, the nature of, of worldwide shipping changed. And there, there's a rise of containers, the intermodal transport system, um, unions. Unions really drove uh, the cost of building a ship um, way higher in the United States than it would have been in non-union places where labor was cheap, like, I don't know, Japan, Korea, China. Um, and they they stepped in. They they filled the vacuum. Europe's industry has uh, muddled along, but even just in the past ten years or so, a lot of the Brit, a lot of the European um, merchant ship construction is now giving way to Chinese. Like you can just you can you can buy it's it's just economics. Um, yeah, I can, so, I can so, buy a better ship. I, I so you you have to separate. Shipping and shipbuilding—they're two fundamentally, fun, fundamentally different businesses. But 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 to, to take shipbuilding, I'd, I'd like to kind of focus on the future a little bit. Uh, the history is what it is. I think it's a, a, a has a lot to do with um, policies, uh, the, the uh, uh, construction differential subsidy program from the that was the support program that was ended early in the Reagan administration, and it probably was appropriate to do so because it wasn't well managed it wasn't well designed uh, it didn't it didn't accomplish what it was intended to accomplish and it was expensive rather than reform that program and make it uh, make it more effective uh, they just they just stopped it and I think that was a mistake um looking uh, so so we are where we are today we have a commercial shipbuilding industry because of the domestic uh, uh, shipping law the Jones Act. Uh, that requires ships to be built in the United States. And to the extent there's uh, demand for maritime services in the United States, and there is substantial demand in many different segments, uh, those ships have to be built in the United States. And, and the law has worked as it was intended not to make the U.S. shipbuilding industry competitive, but to make sure that in, in, in a internationally competitive, let me emphasize that, uh, it is very competitive within the domestic market, but but uh, uh, we have a shipbuilding industrial base, commercial shipbuilding industrial base, sized to meet the demand for ships in our domestic industry, and and we have uh, and that has worked. I mean, when we've had high spikes in demand for ships, as we did in the twenty teens, uh, for when the fracking boom hit, we needed all kinds of tankers to to move. Uh, crude oil around domestically. We built dozens of ships to respond to that, and and they're great ships. Um, uh, so it worked. Then then they changed the policy and and allowed uh, crude oil exports exports, and that uh, resulted that drop that took the bottom out from under that market. So it, you know, and, and the result is that today the the, uh, the the markets that need large ships in the domestic trades are already. Fairly well built out, so there's there's not a lot of uh, demand for shipping shipbuilding right now. I think the solution is um, to take uh, the ship and not focus on domestic trade. I think we keep what we have in terms of, of shipbuilding in the domestic markets and the policies there, but I think we have to look to the international markets and 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 come up with a uh, a series construction program, series S E R I E S construction program so that we're not doing one-offs and two-offs. We're doing repeat 
uh, projects that we get better at. We we learn that we learn efficiencies. We make investments in technologies that help us become more efficient. And we're starting to some extent, um, you know, with a greenfield advantage, so to speak. Um, and so the proposal in in this in this report that I uh, uh, wrote is to the effect that if we had a requirement that ships in the new maritime security program have to be built in the United States, phase it in. The, the first objective is to get a larger U.S. flag fleet in international trade to help deter Chinese aggression. But part of that is, in, is, to, is to leverage that fleet and, uh, and require those ships over time to be built in the United States. And so you get a consistent demand signal of 15, 20, whatever the right number is, ship deliveries every year. Ship builders can plan for that. They can invest in that. The focus is on technology, making sure that that uh, th those ships are, are uh, you know, technologically advanced, both from a, a manpower perspective and a propulsion ship. And I think we, that, that program will work. So I, I don't think there's any question that good ships, very good ships, can be built in the United States. Um, this is not the world's leading shipbuilder. I hear some politicians go, we're, we're still the best at shipbuilding. No, we're not. But um, we can still build good ships. There are good shipbuilders here. And by the way, if the market is there, there will be more good shipbuilders. If the money is there, the, the money leads, uh, industry will follow. So I, I get tired of hearing people that we have to wait till the industry can get big enough so we can invest. Uh, no, 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 no. That's not how that, that works. That is not how that works, kids. But um, but it is going to cost more. What you're saying is, I mean, it's, it's it's it sounds good politically, and of course you can sell that mean more jobs back in the district. Uh, nothing makes a Congress critter happier than to bring jobs to the district. But nationally, you're going to have to pay more for that. You don't get. It, it's you know return on investment it's not all in money you're looking for other other effects of that and do people understand that is there can you sell that i mean that i'm i'm gonna guess that but that's that's probably your 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 toughest challenge right now is so selling I, it. I, I think uh yeah sure um but i think a lot of people recognize i know a lot of people recognize that the the the, the overmatch we're facing with respect to ship construction, just focusing on that part of the industry, and and that something needs to be done, and the something that needs to be done is not going to sort of magically appear. Uh, it's going to take uh, a, a policy shift, a significant policy shift, which is is going to entail uh, some kind of investment uh, of, of public funds. The question is really how to structure that program in a way that's going to get the best bang for the buck and that has the best prospect of of creating a a competitive american uh, shipbuilding industry um we, we can't just throw money at it we have to we have to uh, uh structure it so structure the program so that uh there are incentives in place uh to uh to be uh, technologically advanced and and let the private you know just set the, the idea frankly is just have the government set some parameters and let the private sector Put their heads together and and bid on on those opportunities, and and I think that's the best way that I can think of to 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 put together a program that can change that can change fundamentally change commercial shipbuilding in this country over over a reasonable time frame. 
I, I read this report um, and, and I appreciate the work that you put into it and, and have uh, read some of the other things that, that you've written. I, I worry that it's kind of too late. Um, and, and I mean, I know I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but um, what would you say to folks that worry that it's too late? I mean, you know, and I guess it's all relative, but I mean, I think in terms of the maybe the more aggressive uh, Davidson window or, you know, pick a China uh, worrier that says, hey, you know, we've got to be ready to fight. And, and of which, um, you know, the the commercial aspect is a huge part of we've got to be ready to fight in the next five to 10 years, if not sooner. And so we may not be able to get there from from here. What what are your thoughts on on that? And and, and is that worrying right? Um, or you know, is there more time than maybe we think? Well, that's a really good question, and when I spent some time thinking about, it, I think the answer is the you know re, reinvigorating commercial shipbuilding in the United States is going to take some time. There's no question about it, um, and that Davidson window is is um, you know we're not going to be very far along uh, as far as ship construction is concerned uh, in, in time for the Dav Davidson window. We're going to have to go with what we have, uh, which is not insubstantial and can be scaled up if we get in a, in a real uh, uh, bind uh, along the way. But I think the way I looked at this is that the most important, the top priority is to get as many flag ships under the U.S. flag as we can, as quickly as we can. And we can and we can do that by reflagging, reflagging Liberian registered ships um, or Panamanian registered ships that are, operate in U.S. import export trade. Um, and and those ships uh, are are you know earning their keep um, day in and day out in, in commercial trades. Uh, the U.S. government will need to pay, make up the difference somehow. The difference between operating under the the, the lowest cost Liberian flag registry uh, and and the the much higher cost American flag registry. It, 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 the, that cost delta is going to have to be met somehow. And there are lots of creative ideas about how to do that. Um, I don't try and sort through those in, in, in my report, uh, but I think ultimately that has to be taken on. But I think it can be taken on. I think we can scale up the U.S. flag fleet by reflagging ships, you know, within you know, with it, you know, by the end of the close of the Davidson window, we would be over 250 ships uh, if if we include the second registry. So, uh, I think that's a, a, you know, that's the that's and we could do it faster um, if there's a real sense of urgency. And I think, but I think the, you know, at at this stage, the outlook is such that um, um, I think the 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 schedule that that I proposed is about as aggressive as as I, as I felt we could do. But I don't think it's too late. Well, that, that's good to hear. Um, do you find that the people that need to kind of grab onto this, whether it's on Capitol Hill, whether it's in um, other parts of government, whether it's in um, industry, do they get it? Um, or are there still parts of um, the coalition of folks that need to be brought up to speed? And I'm not asking for you to put anybody on report. Um, but I mean, a, a huge part of doing the things that you lay out in your report would seem to be that there's a recognition of the problem among those that can get after the problem. Do you feel like that? And, and certainly your work helps, uh, you, you know, in, illuminate the problem and, and enlighten those that need to be uh, in the know. But do, do you feel like the right people get it? 
I, I think a lot of people are real concerned about it. Uh, and I guess you'd put them in two or three different categories. Uh, those who are concerned, but uh, kind of shrug their shoulders and don't have a clue about what to do about it, how to how to address the, the issues. And, and that's understandable. We've been on this path for a long, long time. And and uh, and to say we can, we must and can turn this around um, uh, is is um, uh, is a welcome message uh, to a lot of people. But I but I think you know there's there's going to be some skepticism because you know we've just been we, we've treated shipping and shipbuilding as if it's a commodity for for generations, quite honestly. And and uh, and we have have to realize that fundamental policy error. And then look at where we are geopolitically and, and, and take action. I think people understand the need for it. Um, um, I don't think there's very many um, uh, comprehensive uh, suggested approaches to doing it. Um, there's a few out there. This is one. Um, and I think we need to you know, move with a sense of urgency. And I think people understand that, um, but there are a lot of things we need to move with a sense of urgency on. And, and so we're kind of in a, in a contest for airtime, so to speak, um, to, to get this higher on the priority list. So I'm a I'm a PR guy, uh, and and I think in terms of those messages, and I, I you know we don't want to turn this into Twitter uh, you know wisdom or Facebook post wisdom, but I mean you know for for the Navy there this idea of a number um, and that you know either you're behind the number, you're at the number, you're you're ahead of the number. I mean that there there are a lot of people in that industry that sort of focus either rightly or wrongly on that number. Does the industry need to do a better job? And I know that, it, I mean, again, you, you've already hit on a lot of this in terms of it's not as simple as just simply building ships. There's a flagging ship. There's a what size of ships. There's, there's a workforce. But do they need to boil this down a little bit more to make it, you know, congressman proof, staffer proof that are juggling lots of other issues? And I don't mean to disparage them, but I mean, you know, this competes for bandwidth with a lot of other things. Do they need to have a clearer message? So I, I absolutely, that was one of the reasons I, I, I put a number out there. Um, I felt it was important to put a number out there because because otherwise, you know, growth, what 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 what's the goal? You got to have a number that you're trying to shoot for, and the number that um, is in the report is based upon uh, Admiral Busby's assessment and of of what the real military sea lift need narrowly defined, um, conservatively defined using the the same basic metrics that we've been using for a long, long time, but recognizing we're not in the 1990s. We're now we're in, 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 a, in a China situation where, and we, we learned the lessons of logistics, and then you probably covered this in other conversations, but you know the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine bogged down because they couldn't handle logistics on the highways. Uh, a, a, a fight in the Western Pacific is going to be extremely intensive for, for a, a terribly complex logistics challenge, all of it almost involving ships and, and, and maritime resources. So that's why it's so important to, to, to move ahead on this thing. And I sort of lost my train of thought in terms of your question, but I think and I think that's a key. You, you mentioned Admiral Busby, Rear Admiral Mark Busby, re retired Navy Admiral, was uh, headed MSC, Service Warfare Officer, headed MSC, Maritime Administrator. I mean, his, his you, you know, 
he has been a credible advocate, I think, for those in uniform that, you know, that need to learn more about this and realize that, you know, sort of everybody working together, both on the military side and on the commercial side is important. But that 250 number, it was, I really was happy to see that. Because again, I mean, as somebody that I kind of fell in that first category, like where I, I think I recognize there's a problem, but damn, if I know what to do about it, other than to bring smart guys like you on the podcast and talk about it, having a number and and being able to sort of focus and, and work backwards from it, I, I think is very important. Well, the other thing I'll mention in that regard is is the, the, the sort of the notional schedule, what ship types, what uh, are, are most needed. And, and to get people thinking about that, what what does that if you know if the 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 the, uh, the General Van Ovost and and her team at at Transcom and and others who who have direct responsibility in this space start looking at that schedule and say, okay, this is if I were if we had this set of tools, how would I? Uh, what what ship types would I prioritize in, in in this and and start to think in in detail about uh, about how this might work and and what what benefits it would get. Uh, I mentioned in the report there was the the the, the fact that Taiwan is so dependent on uh, on petroleum imports and LNG imports for its energy uh, supply. Ninety seven percent, I think, of the electricity generated on the island where they make. The most advanced microchips in the world. Um, all of that electricity uh, is is based upon uh, ocean-borne transportation of oil and, and natural gas, and it's it's uh, it's a vulnerability that we can help address in the American commercial maritime industry by having a fleet that could be put in place fairly quickly um, of of American flag tankers and and LNG carriers. As one example of how how this having this tool set available would be would be useful. This is my last question. I'll let let Chris ask. Uh, he can finish it up. But we tend to, and I certainly am guilty in the questions that I asked you. We tend to go to commercial shipping as an enabler for potential conflict, right? I mean, it, it you know that's the guilt that we have. But there is there is a serious economic impact for not meeting um, the numbers and the needs that we have, right? Let's hope that we never have to worry about actual kinetic conflict with the Chinese. But if that, even if that doesn't happen, there are severe, you know, I'm looking on my desk here, almost everything on here came from some other country, probably China. And so if we don't have these ships, um, it, everything in our house is going to cost more, right? I mean, like, there, you know, there is to the American consumer and taxpayer, we we run a, a risk by not being able to compete with uh, the Chinese. I'm glad you brought that up. I would have brought it up if you hadn't. Uh, it's, it is uh, one of the things that really surprised me the most as I was digging into this is, it, it, you know, the, there's a, the reality on the one hand is that the global fleet, uh, China has the largest share of the global fleet, but it's only 20%. The other 80% is controlled mostly by uh, companies that are allied uh, allies of the U.S. So uh, I'm thinking, it, could they really do a lot with 20% of the fleet? And then you start digging into that and you say, well, 23 of the top 25 container ports in the world are either completely or partially controlled by by China. 
Um, and and they have developed information systems so that they can find out, they can they have the best visibility of anybody in the world as to what's in the boxes that are moving in international trade. And so it's, you kind of spin up your Tom Clancy scenario where, where uh, you know, the, the, the directive came out from Beijing to suspend immediately all trade and transportation involving the United States and Taiwan. Uh, and, and that directive goes out to 6,600 uh, captains on Chinese flag vessels, and it goes out to the terminal managers in every port in China and to the hundred or so ports outside of China that, that are wholly or partly controlled by, by China. And, and they have instructions on how to deal with it, on how to implement this, this directive. And, and, and I think as, as you think through how that might play out, um, the impact they're, they're effectively grabbing our stuff. We have the ability to, to 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 through our control of the international payments system through the New York banks to to uh, to you know interdict or, or have a, uh, economic sanctions involving money. They have the ability through their control over the logistics system to, to, to have a great deal of power over the stuff that the money <laughs> is going toward. And and I think if they if they ever exercise that in a in a hostile way, uh, either either manipulated it in a subtle ways or in a, in a blatantly hostile way, it could do enormous damage. I think much greater damage than we experienced during the su supply chain crisis a couple of years ago. So how you how you respond to that and how you mitigate that risk is a real challenge, um, and that's something I get into a little bit here. But I think that's something that deserves a lot more attention. I mean this this, this is not inconsequential at all this is not not a small deal they're controlling all these ports um we we the united states pride and, and navy prides itself on uh, being able to sustain blue water out of area operations via its fleet train supply ships which are which are almost entirely military sea lift command ships um but those military sea lift command ships the bean the classic you know beans bullets and oil uh stuff well they don't come direct from you know Charleston South Carolina and go over to the Bob Mandab to resupply ships there there's there's all kinds of uh, shipping points where those those fleet oilers those MSC operated fleet oilers that are out there supplying the seventh fleet at sea underway replenishment but they they get empty they put into a friendly port some other port any port where that cargo is available, they reload, they refill, they go back out. Well, if the Chinese are controlling all those ports, they just controlled our warships, our deployed task forces. They're not going to work. They, they, they can't stay there any, any longer because they can't be supported because the, the, the ports that were, where their resupply depends on those ships putting into, they're closed, which, which you just talked about. That really worries me. I mean, that's this is really sophisticated stuff. It's below the radar. Um, people are no, warning it, about it, but it, it, it's a really good point, and and uh, it's one of the reasons why we why the military has identified Transcom has identified the need for at least one hundred uh, more American tankers than we had a, a year or two ago, and 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 whether that's enough or not, who, who really knows? Um, but. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a very serious, and it's all a symptom 
of the sort of the globalization of, of, of trade and of the maritime industry and, and sort of completely ignoring the wisdom of Alfred Thayer Mahan. You couldn't have this conversation without mentioning uh, him, but he was, you know, from a, a century ago, he said sea power is, is, is the most important thing. And I think a lot has happened since then to make that uh, somewhat less uh, compelling advice, but but I think we ignored it completely, and that was that was a mistake. And so now we're we're kind of scrambling uh, to deal with the fact that we don't have control over over our sea lanes, um, and we we might really pay a high price. But there's ways to, to to get it back, and if we if we if we act with a sense of urgency, I, I have uh, some optimism that we can turn turn it around. I do have one more thing I'd just like to ask you, and that's and this is this is fairly short, but um, and that's only because I'm I'm hearing a lot more talk uh, urging the or foreign investment in U.S. shipbuilders. I'm going back to shipbuilding now, but I'm surprised at at the level that this is coming from. And I've even heard just recently the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps, who's the acting commandant, um, urging this. He talks about you know Toyota put eight billion dollars into building things in America, wouldn't it be nice if other foreign countries invested in American shipbuilding? Uh, we do have two shipbuilders that are that are uh, key shipbuilders that are owned by foreign entities, Fincantieri Marine. Fincantieri is a very large uh, Italian company. Uh, they own uh, Fincantieri Marine, the, the Marine Group up in uh, Wisconsin, and uh, Austell USA in, um, in Alabama is owned by an Australian company, Austell. Uh, Austell's in play. Uh, by all reports, uh, one of the key com key companies that may be interested in this is uh, one of the Korean shipbuilding giants. Um, that comes with a whole other issues. If 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 Korea now gets into building and you know having some visibility, and I know that there are lots of legal strictures about this, but still, um, I'm 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 surprised at hearing more calls for this recently. Uh, whereas so, yeah, some years ago, nobody would have said that. Well, I think it's interesting because I, my my sense is uh, that this has been going on for a long time. I'm aware of uh, licensing agreements that uh, uh, have existed uh, between NASCO and, and one of the major Korean shipbuilders. Um, and of course, Philly Shipyard is uh, uh, related to, uh, to the extent of its continued ownership by um, Acker. Um, uh, out of uh, Sweden, uh, I think, or uh, at the moment, and there have been and there have been several entities that have operated. Yeah, I, so I, I don't think there's anything new about the idea of having U.S. shipyards uh, have uh, either partial, complete ownership, or uh, you know, contractual relationships with with foreign shipyards that can help um, uh, you know, uh, but uh, you know, share knowledge and 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 technology. I think all of that's good. Um, I, I I don't think there's a I, yeah, I, so so I'll just say one thing about U.S. shipbuilders, commercial shipbuilders. At Crowley, we were involved in in, in buying ships. Uh, we bought more ships than I think any other company from the U.S. Uh, shipbuildings uh, sector. And uh, every time we wanted to go buy a ship or a class of ships, we shopped. We shopped it hard. We there were a number of of uh, uh, eligible shipyards that, that would theoretically be able to do this work. We talked to them, we would get best and final offers from two or three of them, and then we'd start negotiating. So, I mean, we, we knew how to work the, the, the uh, make sure that we got competitive offers uh, from 
uh, U.S. shipyards, which the, the point really is, it, it is a very competitive industry under U.S. Un understanding that they're going to have to pay American uh, wages and, and American costs. Um, so I think the question is not whether we can do it. I think we can, uh, whether we can rebuild and get, get where we need to be. We ought to, uh, uh, you know, attract as much um, intellectual uh, capital from uh, large builders or successful builders outside the United States, but I think we can get there. Well, we could go on for a long time um, because this is an underappreciated and under-discussed uh, topic. Thankfully, uh, people like yourself, Michael, are, are doing your part to bring the rest of us up to speed. Um, thank you for joining us. We've been talking to Michael Roberts, a senior fellow for the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at Hudson. I hope you'll come back and join us. If we don't talk to you before then, have a happy holiday, and we look forward to chatting with you again in uh, 24. Thank you, Chris. It's been my pleasure. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishifts podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavishifts on Twitter. And remember... This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cabas. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.